Hello, friends, and welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. One of our goals here at CCGF is to help you take your next step toward Jesus and the person God designed you to be. We hope our sermons help you to take that next step. If you would like more information about the community here at Christ Church at Grove Farm, or if you would like to contact us, you can do all of that and more on our website, which is ccgf.org. And to get an even further taste of who we are, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, here is this week's message, grace and peace to you. Well, I have to say one more time, how great is that band? And these folks who are leading us in worship. Amazing, just amazing. And that last song about making us new wine. I guess you got the message through the whole of the singing this morning that there is pressure exerted in like the crushing pressure to turn that uh, grape into wine. That was early on and then now that we ask that we might become new wine. Like God does a work in us because new wine looks like new life. And we're talking about, as you can see up on the screen, a new day dawning. And the thought, the very idea that you can begin again. Maybe it's day by day, each new day. Like we need a new beginning. And the wonder of God's love for us in sending Jesus is to give us that opportunity of a new beginning. So whether you're watching on live streaming or here in the church this morning, the idea that you can begin again, get a new start, is a powerful concept. So as we consider Jesus sharing himself, showing himself, revealing himself, it all becomes a part of our experiencing him and being encouraged in that to move ahead into something new, like a whole new deal. So let's talk to him for a moment. If you'll close your eyes with me and see yourself looking at him. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for each one of us. One by one, visit with us this morning. Give us that sense that you are reaching out to us to draw us to you. And even as we consider together this visit of yours to your holy temple for a Passover and all that followed, that you in some way will speak to us and redirect us so that you may bring out of us that new wine, that new life. So take my lips, Lord Jesus, and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, I'm going to take you through this visit of Jesus to the temple. Our reading began with Jesus going up to Jerusalem for the Passover. That was a once a year event. 
And the Jews still celebrate the Passover after all these years. I've been to Jewish Passovers where they are celebrating what happened in Egypt way before Jesus came. And they were in slavery. And in that slavery, they called out to God and he in his mercy sent Moses who ended up leading them out of captivity through that miraculous event through the Red Sea and then journeying through the wilderness, which took about 40 years given the obstinacy of those followers and to a new land. But what they were celebrating at the Passover was the passing over of the angel of death. You see, the final step in God breaking the Egyptians so that they would let the Israelites go was to take the firstborn of every family. But the Jews were told that if they would take a lamb, slay the lamb, take the blood of the lamb and put it around the top of the door posts, when the angel of death came by to bring death to the firstborn, wherever he saw the blood on the doorposts, he would pass over. Nathan touched on that last week as one of those symbols. The blood of the lamb being the symbol on the doorpost of the lamb having died in effect, in place of the firstborn of the family. Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So that's where our narrative begins in John's Gospel, chapter 2. Verse 13, it says, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem and there in the temple courts he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, etc. What was going on is this. It's hard to conceive, but somebody has estimated, some scholar who had a whole lot more information about that scene than I would have had without reading him, said that it's possible that up to two and a quarter million people converged on Jerusalem for 15 miles around, every Jew was expected to go up to Jerusalem for the Passover. And all the Jews who were like in Italy, North Africa, Greece, what is now Turkey, they made their way, maybe sometime in their lives, to Jerusalem to be there for this very event. And between all that, there would be tens of thousands of people crowding in on the city. Now, those who came from a distance would want to make some kind of special sacrifice. So when it talks about their selling doves and cattle and sheep, they are there and actually outside the Holy of Holies, outside the court where the Jews worshipped, outside the court where the women worshipped, and in the court of the Gentiles, it was called. 
Gentiles were not allowed in the holier parts of the temple, but in those outer courts, which is what the Jews moved in with these cattle and sheep and doves, so that people coming at a distance could buy them and make a sacrifice. Because having come so far, and this may be their one trip of a lifetime, back to their roots, they would want to make some kind of sacrifice and offering. Similarly, there were tables for money changing. The money changing is because you've got all these different currencies traveling with people from different countries, but to give what was also asked of them a temple tax, which was about two days' wage a year, to the temple, it had to be in Jewish currency. So they would bring their currency and change it from the Roman currency, which would have been very popular, into the Jewish currency so that they could make their payment of the tax to the temple and thereby support the mission right at the heart of things in Jerusalem. Well, in all this, whether selling a cow or a sheep or a dove, or changing money so that they could pay their temple tax, they were being absolutely taken to the cleaners. It became a very dishonest practice. The guys who were doing that were skimming off the top in an exorbitant fashion so that they were getting rich off of the sincere faith and endeavors to worship from these travelers from afar who'd come in for the Passover. And that's the scene that confronted Jesus. Now, interestingly, and I'll just take you back there, because, again, many of you will remember that when Jesus was a lad, his family went up to Jerusalem, and when he was 12 years old, you've got this little account in Luke chapter 2. Every year... His parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. You see, they lived within that 15-mile radius. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. So at 12, and each year after that, as before it, Jesus would have gone up for the Passover with his family. And in this instance, as a little boy... He actually started conversing with the elders, the lawyers, the high-profile professionals in the temple about their faith. And uh, they were amazed at his learning, it says. Well, Passover is finished. The family heads back to Nazareth. They figure Jesus is still with the entourage. But he's not. He's still back in Jerusalem chatting with these high-profile professionals. Three days later, the parents are back in town looking for him and finding him. And they say to him, why were you, he said rather to them, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? My father's house. Even as a lad of 12, he knew he was a child of destiny. 
and he knew Almighty God was his intimate, personal father, my father's house. Now he's turning up at age 30 on his mission, which three years later gets him crucified, which we'll be commemorating here at Holy Communion this morning. You'll be invited if you haven't already to come. Yet you have. I was here when you were invited to come and kneel and be a part of this. He was at that Passover year by year. But on this occasion, he was on a mission. And symbolically, and you got some teaching about symbolism, John has moved the Passover in his narrative from the end where the other three Gospels put it, the end of the Gospel, before he goes to the cross, to the beginning of the Gospel as he gets into his mission. Like to clear the decks is what it looks like as he takes it all on. Because as you were aware, he turned it all over in that scene that was confronting him. Let me read these verses, 15 through 17 of John chapter 2. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn, here's the phrase again, my father's house into a market. And it wasn't just that they turned it into a market, but all the dishonesty and the hypocrisy of it in the name of something holy and ritualistically righteous, they were cheating, skimming off the top, overcharging those who came to them. And Jesus had had enough of that. And he drove them out. Now here's an interesting thought. That Jesus was in the path of what we call duty. He had gone up to the Passover year by year. I have very little doubt that as he went to the Passover year by year, he was aware of the same graft the same illegitimate business transaction and the spoiling of the people's innocence, their sincerity. But he was also reminded that he would become the Lamb of God himself to take away the sin of the world. He knew who he was. He knew it was his father's house. And he was sickened because he loved his father. He knew who his father was personally and intimately. He knew he was there to become a sacrifice himself, albeit three years down the road from this visit. Do you know that the New Testament says of Jesus, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That in many churches is a part of the liturgy leading to communion. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us and the people respond, let us keep the feast. Jesus would have been aware. So here he is coming to the heart of the Israeli people, 
to the heart of their worship and seeing this corruption. And it was a dishonor to his father, a dishonor to everything that the father represented. He knew his father was holy, holy, holy. We know now that Jesus himself was without sin. He was a blameless, spotless sacrifice for our sin. So he was contaminated himself by what he saw. And what we see here is a flash of holy, righteous indignation, which is not what we're used to seeing in Jesus. We're used to seeing gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Love me, your little child. Pray for me, your little child. Watch over me, Jesus, gentle and mild and meek. Do you get the picture of a holy indignation? Have you any idea what that is? To see the, eye, the very eyes of Jesus flaming with indignation, making a cord of whips from the, the ropes and strands of whatever that they brought the animals in by, put himself together with a makeshift, makeshift whip and drive them out? Let me tell you, my wife is a sweet, sweet lady. She's amazing. And she had a dad. And I got to know him, of course, having married his daughter 50-some years ago. And he was a gentle man. He was soft-spoken, very quiet, very sweet, big man. The mother, my wife's mother, was the disciplinarian. And that's not altogether fair, but she had to be because the dad was so tender. But there was a morning when Kathy, my wife, was being driven to school as a young teenager by her dad. And she had just mouthed off at her mother over breakfast before she left the house. And her dad, gentle, mild, quiet, said to Kathy in a very quiet voice, and he was a Norwegian, by the way, grew up in a Norwegian community in the USA, so he had a certain accent, which I will try to imitate. But he said, Kati, I was very disappointed with you this morning. Kathy still says of that, when her dad said that in that quiet voice, she felt like a knife had gone through her heart because her dad never, ever spoke those kinds of words to her, even gently. Can you imagine what would have happened if Mr. Heger, meek and mild, had flamed with indignation at his daughter and shouted at her across the car and said, you shouldn't speak to your mother like that? Some of you have that sense if Jesus were that angry, to get angry. Why was he so angry? Because of the offense to his father's house, his father's dignity, his very father. Get those things out of here. 
turning over the money table, scattering all that cash. You can see those guys scurrying around trying to pick it all up. He was concerned for his father's honor. Secondly, he was concerned, as I've already mentioned, they're trashing the holy place, even be be at the court of the Gentiles, with all this nefarious business going on. Indignant, corrupting, soiling, contaminating the worship of the living God. Jesus had the most severe things to say about the people who claimed to be the most religious. Isn't that astounding? They thought they were holier than thou and they sat in judgment on all the lesser folks around them. Meanwhile, Jesus himself welcomed sinners, drunkards, tax collectors who were really despised. They were seen as traitors to to the Israeli people gathering in cash for the Romans. And they were criminals too, always skimming for themselves. Prostitutes, people who the holier-than-thou folks looked down on and scorned, wouldn't ever be seen dead with. And here is Jesus hanging out with them. And they would condemn Jesus. You meet with sinners and eat with them, he would say. At one point, a woman who was very, very immoral came and wept over him and broke out a a container of expensive perfume and anointed his head and wept over his feet and dried it with her hair. What do you think the holier-than-thou crowd thought of that? Does he know who's touching him, who's doing this? And the miracle and wonder of it is that our Lord Jesus is somehow more tender toward the sinner who is clearly a sinner than the sinner who thinks he is holier than thou. Hypocrisy stinks to high heaven in the nostrils of the living God. Can't stand it. And so Jesus turns them all out. But the religious leaders come and ask him a question. And in coming to ask that question, they are already recognizing this moment as his thinking, he's the Messiah coming to take over things. Listen to these words. They understood his immediate followers, the disciples, by this verse from the Bible that this was Jesus. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's Psalm 69 and verse 9. And they remembered that verse. But the Jews demanded of him, this leadership team, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now what on earth were they referring to? They were referring back to the book of Malachi And chapter 3, listen to this, because this is like almost step by step where we've been Sunday by Sunday in these early chapters of John. Remember our study in John the Baptist? Well, listen to this. 
Malachi, last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew, 400 years before Jesus came. It says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, John the Baptist. Then suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. That's Jesus now coming into the temple. It describes him as the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. He will come, says the Lord Almighty. And they knew their scriptures. That's one of the astounding things. They knew the scriptures so well, but they couldn't see Jesus as fulfilling those scriptures. Throughout the Gospels, it says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus did this or said that all the way to the cross, that scripture might be fulfilled. That's the Old Testament. And here is one of those fulfillments. What authority, what do you show us that by your showing it to us, we know that you have the authority to do this? What they were checking out was whether or not he was indeed the prophet, the Messiah who should come. And he said, I give you this sign, this one sign. You tear down this temple and destroy it, and in three days I will raise it up. But he was speaking of his body, the temple of his body that would be resurrected. That would be like the undeniable sign that he was the Messiah coming back to life again from the grave. Well, here's to what I want to transpose very, very quickly. How does this affect us? I mean, we can all know our hypocrisies. And God speaks to us about putting on a show, looking more holy, more religious, more righteous, more like we're somebody in the church than we really are. I know that. I know you've heard me speak about how we clergy, we in leadership, leading worship, battle for authenticity, to be the real deal ourselves. And it's so easy to play the game, to be somehow religious. So we dress down this particular service, so it's like we're all in the same boat together. But listen to this. This is now after Jesus has died, been resurrected, sent his Holy Spirit, and Paul is out there preaching the gospel, and to the Corinthians he writes this. Listen, and listen good. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought with a price, death of Christ on the cross. Therefore, honor God with your body. Your body, when you receive Christ and his spirit comes into you, becomes the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in you. How's it going for your temple? Are we living with this temple 
as a way that honors the Father. Where are our shortcomings? How can we be more and more authentic that others too might see us and want to believe, want to get their hands on, their hearts on, their souls on what it is that ever lights up our lives? When God speaks to us and calls us to change direction and to repent, to turn from that stuff, and our knowing that Jesus has died for us, paid the ultimate price for us, come and indwelt us, and that we are temples of his Holy Spirit, you and I immediately say, oh Lord, forgive me. Well, the beauty of this service right now is that as we commemorate the death of Jesus and we come forward as you were sort of given a heads up if you're just visiting with us, my encouragement is to bring yourself. Like, know that you self-consciously aren't just walking forward to take part in a ceremony, but did you come and give yourself to Jesus? Give yourself to him.